This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 371st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by the HBO Max original film, On the Record, for your awards consideration. Lauded by The Hollywood Reporter as, quote, a stunning feat of complexity that's both contained and expansive, close quote, On the Record dives into the ways black women are too often ignored when alleging sexual assault and the cultural forces that pressure them into silence. And now down to business. My guest today is a beloved actress who was born into show business, has always had something of an uneasy relationship with it, but over the course of a 55-year career, has decidedly proven herself to be a rare and special talent. Most famously on TV, as the star of the CBS sitcom Murphy Brown from 1988 through 1998, and again from 2018 through 2019, for which her portrayal of a hard-charging TV news reporter brought her five Emmys and two Golden Globes, but also in films like 1966's The Sand Pebbles, 1970's Getting Straight, 1971's Carnal Knowledge, 1979's Starting Over, for which she received an Oscar nomination, 1981's Rich and Famous, 1982's Gandhi, which won the Best Picture Oscar, and most recently, 2020's Let Them All Talk a largely improvised Steven Soderbergh film in which she stars opposite Meryl Streep and Diane Weist, and for which her performance is generating considerable Best Supporting Actress Oscar buzz, the great Candace Bergen. Over the course of our conversation, the 74-year-old and I discussed the challenges and rewards of growing up as the daughter of Francis and Edgar Bergen and the quote-unquote sister of Charlie McCarthy, and also of being stunningly beautiful, while wanting to be taken seriously. Why she wasn't content with her acting until she was offered the opportunity to be funny on screen, how Murphy Brown changed her career and society overall, and also proved a tough act to follow, why she was so excited but also intimidated to be acting opposite Streep in Let Them All Talk, which is now streaming on HBO Max, plus much more. And so without further ado, Let's go to that conversation. Ms. Bergen, thank you so much for joining Candace, us. Up. Candace, let's go with Candace. Thank you. Thank you. Honored to have you on the podcast. I just want to mention up top, I believe we 
have a mutual fondness for someone who I got to be friendly with late in his life. That was Tab Hunter, who was oh. a lovely guy, right? <laughs> you know, I, I got to meet him. Well, it was very shortly before he, he died, actually. Yes. And um, Heidi Schaefer knew him. And I said, I want to meet him. I had such a crush on Tab Hunter <laughs> when I was 11. And... Um, and he came over, and I and I don't know if he told you, but Jane Fonda and Diane Keaton and Mary Steenburgen and Ted Anson, and we all had dinner. And he was like, well, I don't know why I'm here, but I... He was, <laughs> he was so sweet, so lovely. He was, like, just the, the nicest guy, and I, I know that he loved that because I saw the photos and all of that, and Alan has... His partner, uh, they just had a great time, so I was glad that he got to know that he was, uh, he had admirers like you guys, which meant a lot to him. So anyway, uh, on this podcast, we always begin right at the very beginning. Now, I know that your answers to this first set of questions is going to be more interesting than most people's, but just if you can share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. I was born in Hollywood Hospital in Hollywood, California. Hollywood Hospital is no longer there, but I love that that's where I was born. And my father was a ventriloquist on radio. Um, and my mother was uh, a model and a singer. And that's it. Yeah. No, well, it was. Uh, and I know, you know, you had a unusual childhood because he was not just any ventriloquist on the radio. He was probably the most famous ventriloquist on the radio ever. And, uh, and, <laughs> and the there was only all, one. On the and the only one, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> now, he came with a regular partner who was Charlie McCarthy, of course. And I know that you've been asked about this to death, but I hope you won't mind just for maybe a generation who's unfamiliar with well, Edgar yeah, Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. so yeah. weird. <laughs> How can you not? So, well, so tell us. I mean, you've you've said that, quote, I have a perverse kind of pride that I have the weirdest upbringing of anyone I know, close quote. So what what was it about growing up in the home that you did with a uh, wooden brother that uh, that, you know, particularly made it? <laughs> that sounds very strange, but I know it's it's more well, than that. That, that. alone <laughs> is, um, you know, a pretty unusual start in life. Yeah, yes, I. Charlie McCarthy was always, refer I was always referred to as Charlie McCarthy's sister. And when I was <laughs> born, it was in the papers and, um, and it was Charlie McCarthy gets a baby sister and, and he was peering into my crib. And so he was always around. And when I was a kid, until about 30 or 40 years old, I was, not, when I was a kid, he was very much, a living thing, but he mm -hmm. was more than a living person because he was like, um, I mean, he was a head of state in our house and he, <laughs> it was Charlie who brought home the bacon. I mean, my father was behind everything, but Charlie got all the credit. Charlie for a long time had billing above my father in the radio show. And, and we used to, my father used to pull him. He had a room next to mine my my room was the corner room, I like to point yes. out. And yes. um and my father would take him out of the trunk from time to time and, and sort of, you know, we'd have conversations and sometimes he would be 
he would bring him to the breakfast table. We had a little breakfast room, and he would put Charlie on one knee, and I would sit on the other, and the routine was that when he squeezed the back of my neck, that was the signal for me to move my <laughs> mouth, and then Charlie and I would talk to each other, except I would just be moving my mouth, and he would be <laughs> supplying the dialogue. And and I used to go some as a guest a few times on his radio show, and Charlie and I would compete for my father's affection on radio in front of millions of people. Did that extend to real life as well? Did you sort of feel that, you know, he was actually another child of your father's? Yeah, but more. He was more than a <laughs> child because he wasn't a child. He was he had such he was so powerful and so you, you know, d dummies are such weird looking creatures, which today they call them figures, if there's a politically yes. correct term. But, um, I mean, it was just so odd. I mean, it wasn't odd to me because that's what it always was. But um, it was it, there was always a competition <laughs> between <laughs> Charlie and me for, you know, can I have some attention now? And um, <laughs> Well, and that wasn't, I guess, the only unusual thing, obviously, about your childhood, because you grew up during Hollywood's golden age in Hollywood in a family that knew everyone, right? So, I mean, it was not unusual for you to see pretty much everyone, right? Yeah, we did see everyone. And, uh, you know, Hollywood in those days was, a, uh, and I suppose today, I, I, I don't know what Hollywood is today, but was a very... A small community. It was a company town, and and the company was um, show business. And everyone who was in the company got together for parties, and so you you knew everyone who was involved, and um, and you just sort of took it for granted that. I mean, my best friend was Ray Milan's daughter, and uh, my other best friend was the daughter of Nunnally Johnson, who was a great screenwriter-director. And we would, my parents would have parties, and there would be Rex Harrison and Fred Astaire, and um, Johnny Green would be playing at the piano. And the Reagans, right? They were. And they the Reagans, were the Reagans before before Ronnie Reagan was an actor. Uh, was a, a governor, was he and Nancy were very close friends of my parents, and along with June Allison and Dick Powell. And and they used to always, always be in the circle. So it was, um, I didn't realize that other people could be boring, frankly. <laughs> well, so having grown up around all of this, and and having raised you around all this, I guess, did you feel that your parents wanted you to get in the business or, or want you to stay away from it? Because I could see that going either way. My parents did a great job of raising me. They um, set definite boundaries and limits. They, I mean, I was getting offers to appear in things from a very young age. They didn't tell me about it. And they wanted me to finish my education, which was, of course, the right thing to do. And so I went to college. and But then after two years of college, I just, I couldn't resist it. It was so, it's it's like the siren song of, and so I did, um, 
the group with Sidney Lumet, and then I did The Sand Pebbles with Robert Wise, who was the editor on Citizen Kane and starring Steve McQueen. And I was in Asia forever doing that movie. And then I just, one thing led to another. And so I never, I, I was very blessed in the sense that I never had to go out hustling for jobs because I was very well connected through my parents and my looks had something that appealed to people. On the other hand, I didn't know what I was doing. So um, <laughs> when I would appear in movies, I was like a moron. And um, so I, I mean, I, I sort of paid my dues, but in an unusual way. Well, and we're, and I'm going to hope we can dive into some of these specific movies in a moment. But first, I mean, let's just, uh, if we can establish a few of the other steps along the way, first of all, as a kid, is it true that you, I don't know, did you audition or were you approached about the original being an original Mouseketeer? No, that's not okay. Cause that was one of the things I saw. I watched there. it every day after school. Okay. I loved okay. the Mouseketeers. And you knew the you knew the Disney's right, so that was that was. Uh, and we knew the Disney's, thing. yes, of course. I rode on Walt Disney's miniature train in his backyard. <laughs> My father shoveled little tiny coal briquettes into the engine with Walt. <laughs> okay, so the fact that I guess during high school you ended up going to Europe for a period, why was that? <laughs> I wanted to get away. I, I, um, I, I don't know. I just thought Beverly Hills is too small, and uh, and I, I thought it would be interesting and sort of enhancing to go to Switzerland. I'd been hearing or reading about schools in Switzerland, and and that's what I did. And I went with my friend Vicky Miland, and um, we went to. A uh, school in Stad, which is a playground for, <laughs> at that time, it was a playground for Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who mm-hmm. would go through town in a sleigh under fur blankets. And we go, oh, my God. And um, <laughs> so, I, I was, uh, so I was there for a year. And it was really fun. And I got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, and so when you then came back or were brought back or forced back um, to the States, you kind of came back now as a young woman in the beginning of a, or the, I guess the middle of a revolution. There were several revolutions that were that happening back That was a little bit later. The, the revolution yep. wasn't for until probably the, the when I, I started college was when that started. Okay. And yes, I did. So, all right. So you go off to the University of Pennsylvania, a great school. And when you started there, I wondered what you imagined you were going to study and eventually do with your life at that time. I know it changed, but just as you went off now as an adult, you know, kind of not for the first time on your own, because you'd had that experience in Stad, but but now at, at Penn, what was the outlook? I, frankly, I'd been in girls' schools all my life. So a, a co-ed school was a very big deal for me. And um, I was very excited to be in class with boys. And I immediately started studying art history and um, 
psychology, but I, I didn't want to take any of the required courses because they looked boring, frankly. <laughs> I took one which was political theory, and I was like, ah, Kant and Locke and I, Hobbes, and I thought, this is so hard for a kid from <laughs> Beverly Hills. Are you kidding? And um, so I just sort of took courses that I wanted to take, which was great, except I hadn't taken anything that I was supposed to take, so I was following a Brown curriculum, but I was at Penn's, which didn't yes. have that curriculum. And so they, also they at, asked me to leave. Well, and and that was at the end of your freshman year? Sophomore, or the, so, sophomore I, I year. Had, I had two years at Penn. So prior to your departure, you, as you say, were now around guys for, I guess, the first time really in a in a free setting, unsupervised setting. And I guess I just wondered, is this when it sort of struck home for the first time that you were unusually beautiful and that men were going to treat you differently because of that? I, I, I guess, you know, I know that you've spoken a lot about that and how that affects the way people behave around you and how it made your life in some ways frustrating. Uh, was that the beginning of all that? My parents did a really good job of protecting me from that. And I I was not aware of my looks being such a big deal, but I I slowly became aware of the way I was being responded to in that I realized they were not only a big deal, they were the only deal. People didn't care about anything other than the way I looked, which I thought was slightly unfair. And um, so, yeah, that was the first time. Um, and I had stupidly modeled, I put myself through college. I, I was financially independent from the time I was 19. And I did a Revlon ad for Richard Avedon. And of course, the ad appeared in the campus drugstore window. And so it was like, ugh. Um, so I, I I became sort of like a mini celebrity on campus. It was it was not good. Well, can I just ask? And again, I know this is something you've you've uh, spoken about before, but just because it's now uh, of some historical relevance, who was one of the people who you went on a date with during your time at Penn? Who went on to? Uh... Oh, Trump. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, one date. We barely yeah. got through it, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> I was, I think I, I was home and in my room by nine. And uh, yeah, Donald Trump, who was my age, he was not mm -hmm. yet at Penn. He's, he went to mm -hmm. Penn for business school and um, he was at a lesser college. Um, yes. And he took me to a very nice steakhouse in Philadelphia. And, and that was... In a limo, right? Yes, I wasn't going to drag that out, but um, <laughs> yes, he he came in a burgundy stretch limousine, and he was wearing a burgundy three-piece suit and burgundy patent leather boots. <laughs> and he, he was, you know, did, did you have any indication that, uh, any of the signs of what no, he would become? <laughs> no, I, I just thought he would become older, but still a moron. Um, yes. <laughs> I didn't know. Well of the yeah. destruction that would follow. Yes. Okay. So as you noted, you had sort of waded into modeling while at, while still at 
pen, but I guess it, when you were invited to leave, you then moved to New York. Is that right? And that's where it really kind of took off more the modeling. Yeah. It was a big deal to be a, you were a Ford model. That was quite an exclusive group, right? Yeah, it was. Ford was the top agency and um, they signed me right away and, and I never stopped working and until the end of the summer when I left for Taiwan to do the Sand Pebbles. Um, I did test but, for that film yeah. uh, at Fox in LA and and got the part and then and sort of stopped in various places on the way. Finally got to Taiwan, and then I was there for the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> it was a long, long oh shoot. God, and Taiwan <laughs> is not the sort of you know glittery place it is today. There were mostly there was no plumbing. I mean, we we were in a very nice hotel, the Grand Hotel up on a hill, but I mean, it it was it was not fun then. But let's go back a second because, as you mentioned, the group directed by, I think, one of the earlier uh, Sidney Lumet films was even before that. And so it was that, that I had, the group was yeah. my first movie. I had a very and, small part in it. But that was so. So he had he seen a modeling photo or how, what was it that put you on his Sidney radar? Lumet saw a modeling photo of me. And so you, you go to work on that, your first movie playing, let's just note, a lesbian at a college that's sort of like Vassar. And I guess I just want, you know, that today we would talk about for a second and move on. But in the, in those days, that was fairly notable, right? It, it almost killed my mother. I'm, <laughs> and I understand. She said, Candy, if this is your first movie. Couldn't you play an ingenue? You have to start <laughs> by playing a lesbian. And I was like, oh, it was a big, big to do. But I guess was that what put you on the radar for for Robert Wise and and the Sand Pebbles, or was that? I, I actually read that that was you were cast in that before the group was even released. So I wondered how that came about. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know when I was cast for the Sand Pebbles. It, it probably would have been before because. It, there was so much logistical planning in a film like that to to yeah. be so far away for such a long time. And your first leading role in the Sand Pebbles, right? So that's right right into the deep end with uh, Steve McQueen. And uh, the group was successful, but that wasn't, as you say, it wasn't your, you know, it wasn't a particularly sizable part. The Sand Pebbles was successful and that was largely you and so i guess now what was no, no, it as it, a result it of, was a little no. bit me <laughs> and i went from playing a lesbian to playing a missionary so <laughs> yes <laughs> covering the spectrum uh, so i believe though that so sand pebbles was for fox and then as as a result of that success you now sign a kind of long-term contract with fox right i don't remember that's not not the most important thing, but I guess the bottom line was that you ended up now it was spending more time. Years ago, literally. <laughs> I mean, really. I I don't know even what my next movie was. I think it was well, a, it was a French movie. It was the Lelouch movie. It had nothing to do with Fox. <laughs> well, so you you were though now going to be spending more more time back in L.A. 
and you had an agent in those early years who is somebody that people, you know, kind of find interesting and just largely because I guess she was the first really powerful female agent in the business. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about your memories of Sue Mengers. Yes, she, that wasn't until later that I signed with Sue, but um, she was my agent for a long time. She was really a force of nature. I mean, she was larger than life and had a fantastic sense of humor and wit and tough as nails. She became a great hostess in Beverly Hills, where the caliber of hosting was slightly different than it was on the East Coast. But, I mean, you'd see everybody at her dinners, and they were small dinners because she couldn't fit many people in her house, which was a very elegant house. She never slept. I mean, she was always <laughs> working. And uh, I thought Bette Midler did a great job of playing her in... I'll eat you last. Was that what it was called? I, I know which uh, it'll come. It'll come to me. But uh, yeah, it was excellent. And um, and I guess was part of the appeal. She had, she represented a lot of top female stars like yourself, like Barbara, Barbara Streisand. Like, yeah. Do you think it was something about the fact that there there weren't many other women agents at that level, and there was some kind of comfort level in being able to be represented by a by a woman or it was just that there she wasn't was... a high comfort level with sue I mean, <laughs> let me just say that I, I i i'd been with another female agent who did have a comfort level but that was all she had sue <laughs> there's no there's nobody sue couldn't get on the phone and she had um incredibly high profile and visibility in hollywood and and people were sort of ensorcelled by her. And she was, you know, she could, she could talk a game better than anybody. Yeah, yeah. I just was reading, actually, prepping for this uh, funny Vanity Fair profile where they were saying that she uh, tried to poach the actor Tom Yule, uh, who was with somebody else, and went up to him at Sardi's and apparently said, you know, I'd like, you know, I want you to come over, work for me, work with me. And he said, what can you do for me that my current agent cannot? Do you know where this is going? I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You'll excuse my, please pardon the language, but she said, uh, fuck David Merrick. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it was that going was quite in that direction. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but anyway, so meanwhile, your, your career was, um, obviously gaining traction. I, I read that, is it true that you went out for the role of Elaine in The Graduate? One of the one of the ones that I guess would have been a coveted role then? Yes, yeah. it was a very coveted role. And, and I yeah. did go out for it. And I tested for it with Bob Redford. And I had just come back from being in Europe for a long time. And I had no idea how college kids in America dressed. Because I didn't, I hadn't been in America for so long, and I hadn't been on a college campus for so long, that I, I arrived with these sort of really chic button earrings with stones and a cashmere sweater set and a cashmere skirt that I'd had made in Hong Kong and Gucci heels, and people, went, are you kidding? It was. Like, <laughs> I said, well, this is not it. I said, 
this is not a cocktail party. It's co so it, it didn't go well at all. Well, and he he ended up. I guess they went in a different direction as well with uh, with the part of Benjamin, obviously. And anyway, just it's always interesting to see how things were, you know, alternative histories. But you end up uh, receiving the Golden Globe for Best Newcomer in 1968. You know, there's there's growing interest in you in the business. But I guess you said you you did not enjoy acting. I had read in one place until you worked on Getting Straight, the movie in 1970. And you said it was because of something, I guess, the model of how Elliot Gould approached work. Do you remember this, where it was just that there was something about that that he, you said, quote, he was the first person to teach me to enjoy acting, close quote. I think it, it was, uh, there was a, Elliot was a serious actor, but he was very funny. And, um, and Getting Straight was a comedy. And I think it, was the fact that it was a comedy that that's when I started to enjoy acting was when I was allowed to to do comedy which yes. I wasn't for a, a long time and I um and and that that completely turned it around for me and then I I I really really loved acting when I could when I could work in comedy and I know, you know, it would be a few more years before you could really um, lean into doing comedy as much as you wanted to. But just before we go on to any other roles, I think it was also around this time, just another kind of unique perspective that you have on historical events. Uh, I believe that you were living at the house on Cielo Drive very shortly before the Manson family committed those terrible murders there, Sharon Tate and others. And I guess I just wonder, did you have any sense? I, I think Manson had been around while you were still there. Was that the reason you were out of there by the time he came back? Or what was just what are your memories of all that? I, I myself never met Manson, but I I answered the door once when one of his group, Tex Watson, I think, Charles Watson, <laughs> came to the door and um and I, I lived at the house on Cielo for two years, and the reason Manson knew that house was because the man that I lived there with, who was Terry Melcher, lived there and had been out to Manson's ranch on the Han Spahn Ranch um, yeah. and recorded Manson and his group singing, and they were counting on being huge recording stars. And... Um, <laughs> So Manson knew the house, and he was, as only Manson could be, pissed off that he was not the new Frank Sinatra. We then moved to Terry's mother's house in Malibu, and one morning the telescope was missing from the front terrace, and a message came to Terry saying, by the way, I, I came by and took your telescope, so I know where you live. And nobody knew yet that Manson had committed the murders. It wasn't for a few months. And I was in Mexico doing a movie, and I thought, I'll call Terry and see how he's doing. And he said, I can't believe you just called because the police just left, and Charles Manson committed the the murders at the house. So um, no, nobody knew that, that Manson was the engine behind all that. 
And so the reason that you guys went to Malibu was not because you were it, trying it was, to get away. It from- was to escape, run away from Manson. It was okay. So even not knowing that he had, that he would, you know, obviously go on and do violent things. You, he was just a creep. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, so that was, I guess, right at the very end of the sixties, beginning of the seventies. Again, getting straight comes out in nineteen seventy. So does Soldier Blue, in which you are playing kind of a rugged, foul mouthed woman who. Not your typical, not what we would necessarily associate with you to in too many other parts. But I wonder, this is a Western. It was not, from what I understand, very big in the U.S., but it was huge overseas to the extent that looked it up. And I see you were the seventh biggest box office draw in the U.K. in 1971 by the time it had cycled through there. But anyway, I guess I just wonder... You Europeans included- loved the outright violence and the Italians yeah. especially loved it. Yeah. And yet you've included that on a list that you've given a few different times as, quote, real humiliations, close quote. Why? There were certain of these early roles that you were very hard on yourself about. What do you think that was? What what were you what were you down about? Oh, I was down about the fact that they had to make rubber prosthetic boobs for me because I was so flat chested and uh, that I had to be in the makeup chair with them taking plaster casts of my breasts. And it was just, it was just a lot. And, um, and then we would glue the boobs on all the time because they didn't want, you know, they wanted it to look like they were real boobs. And, and, um, and I think it worked for the Italians. Um, and um, I mean, you know, the shoot was was fun, but it was a it was a hard film, and I still had no idea what I was doing. And um, it was called Broken Arrow, and I said, "Well, hmm, how about Soldier Blue? That's in the book." So they changed the title. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Strauss was lovely to work with. I, I I don't know what I meant when I said that was humiliating. There were. So well, it sounds. <laughs> well, uh, we're not going to get into the adventures or some of the others that I know you really don't like, but um, I I do find it interesting that you know you felt up until T.R. Baskin, which was the next year, you had said, "quote That is really sort of a vehicle where I have to act and not just be a sort of decoration." Close quote. Prior to that, I think there was this feeling like you're talking about with the fake boobs and other stuff where it seems like, again, it's, it comes back to like maybe a, a patronizing idea that who knows, maybe it still exists in the business that if you're that pretty, you can't be good as well. I, I think it's that, but I think it's more than that. I think it's what, how people perceive women and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, films were never about women, not, not mm-hmm. until fairly recently, frankly, and um, you know they they were not perceived as much more than decorations. Yeah. Also that year, Carnal Knowledge for Mike Nichols, where you're playing this Smith girl who kind of comes between Nicholson and Garfunkel, and I I know that you are one of many people who have said that there was something about 
Mike Nichols, that really he was, in your words, the actor's ultimate director. And I wonder why, what made him that way? What, what was it about his way of working with actors? I think he had, had he as a young person, he'd obviously done comedy, but I think he'd also done just straight acting himself, I think. He had done routines with Elaine May that were brilliant, and they had had huge success in theater in Europe and, and in New York, and I think they played in L.A. But, uh, he'd also worked as an actor on a, a piece, a, a very intricate piece by Wally Shawn called The Designated Mourner, and he had uh, worked as an actor in... Hurley Burley, maybe? I don't remember, but it was he, he did it in Connecticut. He did it very low-key. I mean, he was an actor, and he loved actors. And the atmosphere on a Mike Nichols film was always raucous and comforting, and um, you were encircled by him, and you were you just felt that you were in the most fun the most focused, safest place. Mm. Uh, and, and that was very unusual because he was very unusual. Mm. Another one that always comes up when, you know, one of the things I, I tweeted as I prepped for this, I was just trying to gauge which of your film roles people love the most. And I put it out there on Twitter. I didn't say why I was asking, but um, a lot of people said, the Wind and the Lion, where it's you and Sean Connery. I was Connery. horrible in that movie. Well, that's what that's why I'm surprised. I, I've seen that you've said that, and yet a lot of people liked it. I know you were kind of brought in, I think, quite late in the game when Faye Dunaway fell out, but so maybe you felt unprepared, but people like people are, are enjoyed it. You didn't think it, you were I thought it? it was a great movie. I mean, great. It was not Lawrence of Arabia, but... It was a John Milius movie. It was a first draft. He didn't rewrite it. That's just the way he worked. It was wonderfully written. Sean somehow connected with people as a Berber tribesman when he came, you know, because <laughs> maybe his Scottish brogue, but um, yeah. he he was great in The Wind and the Lion. It was, the film had a great joie de vivre. It was fun. It was alive. It, it had a sense of humor and it was romantic. Um, so the, I, I loved the movie. I wish I had been better in it because really when I see it now, I think, well, at least I knew how to sit a horse. <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, that was 1975. Next one I'm going to ask you about is from 1977, where it's a director who I've seen very differing opinions about him, but he's certainly somebody that people still uh, know about and study. And that's Stanley Kramer with the Domino Principle. You're playing the wife of Gene Hackman's character. And there was a time when you said, and I don't, I don't know if this is still the way you feel, but uh, quote, thanks to Gene, it turned out to be the best part I've ever done, close quote. Now, sometimes people say things when they're promoting movies because they, whatever. But I, I wondered if, if it really was that special an experience for you, because that's not one of the movies that people know as well as some of these others. No, it's not. And what made it special for me was that Gene worked with me on that movie. And and he's not nobody. I mean, yeah. he's one of our very best. And he spent real time and we worked on a soundstage at 
Warner Brothers or wherever it was. And, um, and he really helped me to feel comfortable in that part. And it wasn't a part I'd done before. And um, I think I used a sort of corny accent. But, but I, I felt like I was connected to the work because of through Gene. Yeah. One more that I'm going to ask you about before there was sort of a big turning point. And this one is the essentially the sequel to Love Story, Oliver's Story, 1978. I believe that you were you are, I think, to this day, I believe, from what I understand, close with Ali McGraw. Very. And she had out. Yeah. She was obviously eight years earlier in the in the original. Here you are now coming in with Brian O'Neill. And I guess I just wonder, did it feel daunting to have to live up to that level of success that that movie, I mean, that movie was a huge hit, the original for Paramount. Yeah, it was. It it was, um, I mean, it was all about that movie for that year. You know, it was, it was fun. It was an easy movie to make. Working with Ryan was fun. We were in Hong Kong, which is always great. (laughs) I mean, it was just, and, and I, I also earn a living. So yeah. <laughs> was it a great movie? It wasn't even a good movie, but it was <laughs> it was fine and it was fun to do and um and there was it was it was a pleasure. And and yeah. You know, I'm 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 only grateful that I got to earn way more than I should have. I mean, as a profession, it's overpays by miles <laughs> and it and it was it was a great experience it was it was just easy and and fun and sort of adventurous so that year 78 was also the year that you lost your father with whom as you've said there was this complicated relationship for your whole life and i guess i just wonder when he when he passed away was that in any way sort of liberating as an actor did you feel i I know that you've indicated that there were things that he would say like you know i'm candace bergen's father or things that on the one hand were you know being cute but on the other hand might have suggested that he was a little bit intimidated by your success maybe overshadowed for a moment yeah um i don't think he was intimidated by it but you know, my my father was was a very good father. He but he was away working a lot, and he was a Swede, and that brings a very specific set of character traits. They're not warm and fuzzy. I'm I'm very Swedish myself. I like, <laughs> like ugh. I, I mean, this is where everybody's always hugging and kissing. Thank God for the pandemic because it's like, right. yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I was, you know, I just wanted my father's approval more than anything and loved him more than anyone and and had great respect for him. And, um, you know, he was very intelligent. He was very no-nonsense. He could be very funny and very bawdy and... Um, it all depended on, you know, who he was with. And, but um, so my father, you know, I wish that I wish we had closed the circle. But um, but it was better by the time he passed on. And and I made efforts to make it to express how much he meant to me and 
And that was as far as I got. Is it a coincidence, though, that, you know, here's a person who had made his name in comedy, and yet it wasn't until just after he passed on that you embraced that side of your own skill set to the point where that very next year was was starting over where you're really funny for the first time maybe on screen and then shortly after that is rich and famous and i'm going to ask you more about each of those but do you think that it was in any way i guess is it just purely coincidental i think so but i think it probably is but but i'm i'm sure in a way it was it was freeing i mean you know to get uh, starting over was just really great luck because it was such a it was Jim Brooks first film script and um Alan Pakula and um, Jill and Bert and it was just a wonderful movie and we'll note that really the the scene that comes to mind for everybody immediately when you talk about that movie of course is you doing this comically terrible <laughs> rendition of this song better than ever while Burt Reynolds looks like someone has died. And uh, it's just, I went back and rewatched it to prep for this. And it really is. You can see that you're having fun with it. And it's, Oh, it's the best I guess time. It, the yeah. best time humiliating myself mm -hmm. in the best way. And the crew was holding throw pillows over their ears. I mean, they, <laughs> everybody was great on that set. It was so much fun. Now, it almost, I guess when, when you first heard about starting over, is it correct that you initially wanted the Jill Clayburgh part? Yeah, I didn't know I couldn't do it. <laughs> I, I, I had no idea how limited I was. I mean, you know, really, I just didn't know anything. But it was a bigger part. So yeah. I, I'm very lucky that I got the part I did and we both got nominated for it. So that was also very nice. I was going to say, so you get a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination. It's 1980, which was a notable year for another reason, which is that you at the age, I think, of 34, having not yet married uh, and sort of, I think, in your mind, maybe reconciled with the possibility that you would not, now you do get married. Was that, a, was that, was that as big a change in your life as it sounds like it would have been? Well, what was big was finding the man I wanted to marry. That was very big. And, and how did that happen? Well, we met. Uh, this is how it <laughs> happened. I mean, we, we, we met a couple of times at parties, and, and once I sat next to him at a dinner, and, and we were so self-conscious that neither of us said a word to each other for the entire meal. And, um, and then he called up just out of the blue, and asked to have lunch. And, and, and he initiated it, which took a lot of courage, I thought. And um, and we had lunch at the tea room. It was like a four-hour lunch. It just went on and on. And, and it, you know, when you're older, you know when it's the one. And we should obviously just say, if anyone's not aware, this was a great filmmaker in his own right. Louis yes. And uh, yes. Um, and and yet, I guess you would not have ever professionally crossed paths prior to these these meetings. You know, I guess he was primarily working 
still at that point over he had not well, really he did pretty baby here yeah 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 so i mentioned rich and famous which was the following year and i uh i think this was another one where you've said that it was fun because you could kind of lean into the comedy also the final film ever directed by george cukor which is fairly significant i mean i you probably are the I, I would think maybe the last person that w- around that was ever directed by him or anyone involved with that project. And I guess I just wonder, again, this is essentially a remake of old acquaintance, right? So there's these two great parts. Again, I think you thought you were better suited for the other. Is that the case? No. I had seen, no? I don't think so. I loved working with Jackie Bissett. I think she's a wonderful woman and um, I haven't seen her for way too long, but but I, I really do care about her. And, um, and that was just pure fun. And I lo- because I got to be this kind of, no, the, I, I wanted, the part I had was the fun part. And, um, <laughs> and I, I just could be this sort of southern dingbat. And it was <laughs> so much fun for me to do. And well, Q-Core, funny. I got along yeah. very well with Qcor because... Again, he was old Hollywood, and it was part of of my past, and um, and we we got along very well. But he was incredibly weak and couldn't finish the film, and and would get disoriented. He wouldn't know where he was sometimes, and um, and so we sort of got the film finished in spite of that. But it wow. was. He and he and when he came on to the film, he came on sort of we'd shot maybe oh, two weeks and I don't remember how it happened, but they pulled who was shooting it off and Kikor didn't want to use the footage we'd shot. And I thought, you're throwing the footage away? <laughs> and he he re he re he redid my hair. He put me in a sort of long wig with and fur coats. He glamorized the film and made it a Cukor movie, and you know had everything. The sets were much sort of sharper and chicer, and um, he he made it into um, you know a film with some sizzle, which, mm. which was not easy for a guy who was really old. Yeah, and had always, I guess, been a favorite of actresses in particular in his younger days. I guess it's interesting for whatever the reasons. Um, And I just want to quote back to you another kind of fun thing I came across, a a long-ago Playboy interview that you did that I thought this line was funny. Quote, when I was doing Rich and Famous, looking through Vogue to research really dopey women in the 70s, since I was trying to look like the worst kind of fashion victim, the person I kept coming across most often, the person with more hair pieces than anyone else, was always me. Me. (laughs) I ended up satirizing myself with those pineapple hairdos and false eyelashes, close quote. So, uh, you're pretty hard on yourself. That was people. Uh, is that generally? Do you, do you see that that you're you're hard on yourself? Yeah. Yes, because I think I want to get there first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Defense mechanism. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, I, I'm not as hard on myself now because I don't think I need to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I will just say that this this author of Schlock, I couldn't help but think of her 
when I'm watching Let Them All Talk and Meryl is giving such a hard time to the guy over at the other <laughs> the other author on the on the ship. But uh, it all kind of, you know, there's a connection to all this stuff. But so it's the year after that, it's Gandhi. And I think it's so interesting because speaking of connections, you knew Attenborough from the Sand Pebbles. You were, uh, I think, familiar with the photographer who you were going to be playing because you yourself were by this point, very into photography yourself. You know, this is a movie that won the Best Picture Oscar. It's still very uh, fondly remembered. And I guess I, I just curious what you think of when you think of that movie. Well, I think of what Attenborough went through to make it. I mean, it took him 20 years to make that movie. And while he was shooting the movie, he was still he was still raising the money. I, I don't know how he physically got through it because he worked long days with thousands of extras and Gandhi and I mean and the and the weight of the subject matter and then he would go out to dinner with money guys to try to get the rest of the money for the movie and um, so it was really a struggle just every day. And I was very proud of him and and thrilled that he won the Oscar yeah, yeah. because nobody nobody ever worked harder to get a movie made. Mm. All right, so it's the now flashing forward to uh, the later part of that decade, the eighties. You're forty one years old. You haven't worked, I think, in three years by choice. I'm sure. And you get a script from Brian Lord, who I believe was at W or William Morris at that point, which also represented somebody named Diane English. And I just wonder if you... The, the agency can... did not submit the script to me. I only found out about the script because of Brian Lord. So let me just say that even then, Please. Brian was yeah. a brilliant agent because William yes. Morris didn't even tell me about it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and this what we were talking about, of course, is the script for Murphy, the pilot of Murphy Brown, um, which you would do for the next 10 years and then another more recently. But just um, I guess as you read that, I heard it was on a plane as you finally got around to reading the, the pilot script. How how good is your radar for great material? Was this something you immediate you knew it right away? Absolutely. And and I think I said in my book that there were payphones on planes then. So I got up <laughs> and used my telephone credit card, because we used those then too, and made a call to Brian and I said I'm so sorry I waited this long. The script is great. I What do I have to do? I want this. And so Diane and her then-husband came to New York, and we met in our apartment. And, I mean, it, Murphy was still the best job, the best role I ever had. Just, I mean, I've I've had... Shirley Schmidt on Boston Legal was pretty mm -hmm. good too. I mean, David yes, Kelly is yes. no slouch, but no. Um, it was just it was for me like a comedy lab, and and that's where I started to 
get my stuff together. Well, but let's just note how easily this could have never happened because from what I understand, the network didn't really want well, Murphy Brown to be in her. I was well, but let's let, 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 let's fully set it up though, right? Because they didn't want Murphy Brown to be in her forties, the character. They didn't want her to have just come out of rehab, they, and they didn't want you. Uh, not to, I mean, they're obviously idiots, but that was the situation, right? Yeah, they wanted Heather Locklear, who who's lovely, but um, the whole point of Murphy was that. She was an alcoholic. She had been in rehab. She, she'd been through the wars and um, was as tough as anyone in her profession, as good as anyone in her profession. Oh, it was the best work experience. The best. Well, so obviously a, a massive ratings hit, massive critical hit. You wind up the highest paid performer on TV, which doesn't happen by accident. You win five Emmys in a row, and probably would have kept winning had you not done something that's amazingly humble that nobody else does, which is remove your name from further consideration. But I guess that's the, the point of the question is, how do you explain why it was that successful? What was it about the show and about your performance, if we can set aside in all humility and just look at it analytically, why was it that big? Well, it was extremely well-written. It was, uh, and it was starting to happen. It was about a, a woman in te television journalism who women were just beginning to get a foothold. It was just starting, and Barbara Walters was the first. And um, so it was reflective of that, and I think... A lot of women related to seeing a woman in charge. It was like, yeah, finally. And mm -hmm. um, and the fact that she was so flawed and that she had sharp elbows and, and that she wasn't especially likable. I, I, I always sort of um, made it my mission to redeem Murphy at the end of every episode. There were some where I felt it was just too harsh and too mm -hmm. relentless. And I would say, guys, I can't do this. And, you, and I, especially when she had her baby, I said, I can't miss his birthday. So don't do it. You know, I'm mm -hmm. not going to do it. And um, it was, um, it, Barnett Kelman directed the first few years and, and he, he gave a pace to the show that was, I mean, they, and Diane very much wanted a, a New York newsroom. Well, it was, the newsroom was in DC, but a, a news magazine pace, which is, and just everything mm -hmm. crackling. And, um, so we had, you know, the background atmosphere was always like they were shot from rockets across the set and lots of frenetic activity. It, it was it was sort it was like getting on a train as it was moving, and mm -hmm. getting off seven months later, and just like because <sighs> <laughs> um, you would you guys would do seven months a a year for well, for a season, right? Mid July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, mid March. Yeah, it's, it's seven, yes. seven, eight, eight, seven, eight months. And, Which can't um, have been easy because I know you're 
husband for a lot of that time was on another continent. Yeah. My my husband at that time was missing France. So he wanted to go home. And I was missing LA. So mm-hmm. I wanted to go home. Mm-hmm. And there are strains in a a bicontinental relationship that are just in the recipe. You can't avoid it and you just do the best you can. You know, sometimes I would try going on my weeks off to Europe, but when I get back, I would be so exhausted and the time change. And the... so it was very hard on our marriage and, and on Louis. And, um, but as a work experience, it was the most exhilarating. And, um, and you were at this point also a young or a, a new mother early on in this, right? Is a, a lot going on, and I. There's I wonder, lot, but it was also it was being a half hour shoot. I was yeah. home by four thirty five in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. I took her to school in the mornings, and I was only home late. Sometimes Thursdays, definitely Fridays, and we worked three weeks a month. So for a, a parent, it's it's really the ideal schedule. Sure. Obviously, everyone talked about the Dan Quayle thing when when that happened. I, I, I actually found going back that you, at as it was happening, chose to not say too much, really, Anything. until the Emmys. Yeah. Uh, Emmy night, you you <laughs> you accepted your win saying, quote, I'd like to thank the vice president, close quote. And then also you thank your writers for their words, quote, and spelling them correctly, close quote. But you you kind of stayed out of that. And I wonder if I was overwhelmed, it was overwhelming, really. It was like suddenly it was on the front page of the New York times above the fold with a picture of me holding the baby. It was on the cover of the New York post quail calls Murphy slut. I mean, it was everywhere you turned. It, It was everywhere. It was in, it was in many, op-eds about the campaign because it was in the middle of a political campaign. So suddenly family values became the key platform. And then Clinton took it over. It was like, no, that's Quayle's platform. You don't get that one. Um, (laughs) Right. Well, just for our listeners, they should know if there's anyone who wasn't around at that time or whatever, that he's basically saying the fact that she's choosing to have a baby as a single woman is Bad and irresponsible. And, and, the, yet, the, and making a, fathers yeah. indispensable, which we yeah. did not. No. But we knew it, it was loaded. And Diane and I uh, went on a ride. We went on a horseback ride to talk about it. And, and, uh, and then we had a quiet a sort of a private dinner for the writers and, a, and of how we were going to present it because we knew how loaded it was and we thought if it were, the baby were conceived with Murphy's ex-husband and um, because also that was happening. Women were having sing, single mothers was a phenomenon that was just beginning. I mean... It, it was it was very tricky, no question, and and I I don't disagree with the people who were offended by it, and um, and I were had offended friends, by well, what just he the fact was by saying? the politics of it, and by what yeah. we were seeming to encourage, and a friend of mine at the time said, "You be careful, you're 
you're getting into very tricky ground here. And we were. Well, and yeah, I mean, there was a thing that you did say to the LA Times back then, which I think is interesting that, you know, it would have been easy to just, you know, just dismiss it as saying Dan Quayle's an idiot, which fine, but you acknowledge that in that year after having the baby, after Murphy had the baby and the baby was sort of a, a second priority for her, that was tough. You weren't sure that you were on board for that because, uh, quote, I didn't think it was a good message to be sending out, close quote. So it wasn't just reflexively, Dan Quayle's an idiot. That was also the first year of the show without Diane English writing it. Yes. And it was sort of stressful. I didn't yeah. agree at all with Murphy making the baby second priority. I, mm-hmm. I always had a hard time with that because mm-hmm. my own daughter has, you know, always been sort of my epicenter. I wonder if you realize how influential and how studied now Murphy Brown is. I took a women's studies class at Brandeis University maybe 15 years ago. And it was a very, it was several classes that we devoted to it, uh, not to the baby brouhaha or anything like that, but just about the fact uh, of what this show represented. I mean, the, the look at single motherhood, working motherhood, cancer, cancer, breast cancer, your final season, alcoholism, stuff that a, a person who's a woman who is far more successful in her professional life than in her personal life and all this other stuff. I mean, it's she not, paid it's a price. easy to, she paid a price and, and the show, the season on cancer was brilliantly and sensitively handled and made an impact on the number of women who went in to get mammograms. And I I had women, young women, coming up to me in the middle of stores with tears in their eyes saying, my mother and I watched, watched Murphy during the last year of her life. It was like, oh my God. It was, um, I mean, it, it made a big difference to, to a certain amount of women. Well, and the fact that Murphy, uh, I guess you guys single-handedly drove up mammograms by a huge amount, probably saved some lives by doing that in that 10th and for that time being the final season. And anyway, I know you said that after the Diane left, I think after the fourth season, and you feel that maybe in hindsight, it would have been wise to end it there. Many shows go on too long because everybody has a financial reason to keep going and other things. But But it's not uh, just that. It's that you put down roots and you see people when they're youngsters and then you see them meet people and fall in love and then you see them have families and, and buy their first house. You put down roots with people that become your second family and in a way they're your first family because you spend so much time with them. And um you know, I love the people in the cast of Murphy. We we love working together. So when the show... And the money did, was spectacular. <laughs> well, thank you for being honest. And uh, that that's part of it, of course. But when it came to an end in 1998, what was your mindset? Were you just exhausted and looking for a break? I know there was this thing, apparently Don Hewitt wanted you to now become an actual TV person on 60 Minutes. You didn't do that. Uh, I guess just as you looked into these next few years going into the beginning of this 21st century and just you're now 
I guess would have been 51 as the show ended. I think just what was your mindset? What were the opportunities that were available? How did you feel about everything as the show came to an end? Well, it's very emotional when you end a show of that longevity and, and then you don't know what to do with yourself because your life has been, every minute has been accounted for, for 10 years, except for the time off. Um, I, I did a lot more things at school. I served a lot more hot lunches. Um, I guess we should say that you had lost your husband tragically during that, during those final years of the show, you were, while still juggling the show, were also caring for him and your young daughter. And I mean, you had been through a lot. Yeah, I had. And and for me, coming to work was comforting. And I would see when I'd come back after a week off, the cast would sort of straggle in and the more work. And I was like, guys, I missed you so much. And it was like, yeah, right. And um, it was it was very comforting to to work after my husband died. And and of course, the show went on. We should have stopped after Diane left except for the last year about cancer. And that, that was very well handled, but. Yeah. Well, you, as you mentioned, you had a, another great TV role in the years after with this Shirley Schmidt part on Boston legal, which was between 2005 and 2008, two more Emmy nominations you've done in recent years, a whole bunch of uh, hit movies from, I'm just going to run off a few, uh, Miss Congeniality in 2000, Sweet Home Alabama in 2002, Sex in the City in 2008, and then some others that are, you know, real art house favorites uh, between Rules Don't Apply, Meyerowitz Stories, Book Club. And then 20 years after you went off the air with Murphy Brown, you guys got back together for what ended up being just one more. But I wondered what that was, what was what that was like to kind of step back into a character after that much time where a lot of things in the world had changed, but also a lot of things hadn't because the night you guys, or the, I guess the day you guys returned to the air was the day of the uh, Kavanaugh Blasey Ford congressional testimony. And you had been dealing with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas when you were originally on the air. So sadly not everything changed, but just, what it was like now in the Trump era to go back to doing something that you are forever associated with? Well, first of all, we had to shoot in New York because my husband couldn't travel, so we had to be here. And that was a big, that increased the cost of every episode by half a million dollars. And we had to set up a studio in Brooklyn, which was great, frankly. And um, at the... uh, Astoria. Um, yeah. And we came to the set the first day and I had seen the studio when it, the soundstage, when it was empty, there wasn't a stick of furniture, not a, no audience seating, nothing. And then I walked in and all of the audience seating was in and the sets were identical to the sets we had. And I burst into tears. In fact, many of us did because it it was so moving. And um, that was all done by Frank Pace, who was our producer and who did it in record time and is great at his job. And then to to do the table reading and we just slid back into it very easily. And every 
show night, Faith would come into my trailer and give me a hug, and 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 I would be crying because I said to her, I said, it's so much, it's just so much that they moved it to New York, that they did that, that um, that we can have this chance of recreating it again and be together again. Um, and we worked really hard. We thought we did a very good job. We thought that we all did the best work that we were capable of. So it was it was disappointing. But again, I, you know, I said to Diane, we just have to be grateful that they gave us um, the chance to do even half a season. Well, and your reasons for returning were, I think, pretty admirable, which was that, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was now the era of Trump and people calling everything fake news and grabbing women by the, you know what, and all of this. And it was in a way you guys took it on head on and, and, you know, I, I guess that's credit you know, to you and the network. We also alienated half of our audience. So yeah. well, it, it might've, it might've been um, <laughs> too much, but we, it was, it was a very, it was a very exciting few months. Okay. So this leads us up to something that you are getting some of the best reviews in, in a long time for people are, I don't know how, if you read this, read what people have to say about you, but you, everybody watches a Steven Soderbergh movie when it comes out or a movie with Meryl Streep. And there's a lot of people who will watch anything that, that you're in, but this movie, let them all talk, which is, I guess, because of the pandemic, exclusively been HBO Max. Anyone can get it at home now. People have tremendously responded to your performance in this. And I guess I just wonder, you know, I had read that it came about because Carmen Cuba, I believe the casting director, knew that Soderbergh is obsessed with Mike Nichols and Mike and knew that therefore Carnal Knowledge was a movie that he was very into and that therefore he would probably be very into you, which is, of course, the case. And so you guys just t take it from there. How did you hear about it? And uh, and and, you know, what was your reaction that you're going to be potentially working with him and Merrill and Diane Weiss and just this unique project where you're actually anyway, just if you can take it from there. It, it, my agent called me and said, Steven Soderbergh would like to have lunch with you. And so we spoke on the phone and we said, where do you want to go? And we went to a restaurant that had been Mike's favorite restaurant, a restaurant on Central Park South called Morea. And, mm. um, and he asked me to do the movie. And I thought, that's it. I don't have to. I don't have to wallow. I don't have to grovel. It's, it was. Um, it was so. It was just like a a gift. Like here you are, and mm -hmm. um, he said we're we're going to shoot it in ten days. And I went ha ha, <laughs> <laughs> and we did. And he he could do that because he is a little bit of a maniac, but because he's the most intensely focused individual you will ever meet. And he, there's a fairly new camera called the red something mm -hmm. camera that shoots 
available light. And you don't need lights. So you don't need to set them up and take them down and set them up again. So you save at least half a day every day. I still don't know how he got it down to 10 days, but we would shoot from nine in the morning, easy hours, to nine at night. And then, actually on the Queen Mary too. You we, guys we actually took two, that trip. We shot two days in New York. Um, I shot, I was selling lingerie at Neiman Marcus in Westchester <laughs> and, um, and Meryl was doing, and Diane was pretending to be in Seattle. And then, and then we got on this ship that was the most magnificent ship I could have ever imagined. Maintained to, there, you couldn't find a speck on that ship. There was not a chip of paint off of anything. It was the most elegant, beautiful ship. And the three of us had duplex staterooms with spiral staircases, with etched glass panels like the one Merrill's character has <laughs> we all had those it yes. was heaven and we just worked on the ship all the time and and then we would take a half hour lunch we'd eat really fast and then we'd go back to working and then we would go to the bar and sort of unwind and Stephen would be in the bar but he would be huddled in the corner going over the day's footage and editing the movie. I thought, this guy is like a lunatic. How does he ever sleep? And um, when we got to England, after a six-day crossing, which was just idyllic, um, we shot for two days at this kind of funky faux Tudor hotel, and then we were done. It was like... I thought I had hallucinated the fact that I did a movie was so short. And we should note that this is not a traditional thing where you're handed a 90-page script or whatever and go learn your lines. This, can you explain how, I mean, I don't believe you had improvised very often before this, Ever. had you? Ever. Yeah. It was Stephen's idea, I think, that we should improvise the film as if it wasn't hard enough to shoot it in 10 days. <laughs> um, he included Deborah Eisenberg, who is a great author of short stories, Your Duck is My Duck, among other books. And Deborah came up with the story idea and a half a page on each character of their background, of their, they were all three best friends in college at the University of Austin, of Texas. And um, and then every day she would give you a piece of paper saying, today's scene, you're, you're going to be sitting on deck with Diane, you're going to be talking about, uh, you know, you're wondering what's going on with um, Alice Merrill's character, or you're going to be having dinner all of you and one of you gets very drunk and 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 that and you're going to be and you want to get to your cabin by the end of the dinner and then you just kind of go and of course it's Merrill and um but 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 Deborah Eisenberg has such an a skewed sensibility that it just gave you so much to riff on and um and I went to Texas for three days um, to because I was sort of 
panicking because it was Meryl. And um, (laughs) (laughs) well, that's what I wanted to ask you is like, you've been doing this longer than Meryl. You have received all kinds of great accolades and notices over the course of your career. But I would, I wondered if even for you, is it a little intimidating to know that you're going to be working with Meryl Streep? A little. Um, (laughs) So I was there, you know, on an oil field, looking at an oil rig. And I was, because my father was an oil rigger in Deborah's story. And I was at the University of Texas gift shop buying t-shirts with longhorns on them. And I mean, I I just uh, was trying to get a running start even just a walking start would have been a lot and and um and you know working with Meryl is is easy because she's so beyond there's no adjective that can describe her ability because it's just not definable so when when you you saw it literally right up close was i i know that it may be hard to describe but is there some sense that uh you know like for instance you guys have that great scene where you finally air your grievances to her and uh it's terrific but i wonder um in a scene like that what's it like for you to do what you're doing but also can you see what she's doing that even when the scene's not even really her scene in a sense she's still interesting still interesting i i was i was in the middle of such a meltdown during that scene i i i just i didn't even i i didn't even know i just didn't know where i was i thought she was speaking esperanto i thought if he doesn't stop this scene this is useless i don't know what i'm saying i don't know what she's saying she's you know she just knows everything about everything it's you can't you can't get there ahead of her and and she's very generous as an actor but i mean the movie was hers she just took it and did this with it and that with it <laughs> i mean the woman is in such control and 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 then stephen finally said cut and i just <laughs> I, I i i was despondent i said can you use that and, and he said, you didn't think it, you didn't think you were getting it oh I was I thought you were great in that scene. No, no, no. Maybe in your mind. That was that's one of your one of your great scenes in the film. But anyway, I mean it's uh the whole thing is a, a pleasure. And I, I think that um I know that you had said you were skeptical that there would be an audience for this, but yet it seems like people can't get enough of it. So I mean, of all demographics, of all genders and whatever, I mean it's really gone over great and I, I hope that's uh, reached you and it hasn't. I, I had no question. idea. I didn't know that. I didn't. I didn't know how well it had done. Um, so I'm glad. I'm glad that it's done well for them. Well, just my last question uh, for you is this: Obviously, as we've established over the course of this conversation, we've gone through pretty much step by step a, an amazing career and still still going strong. And I guess I just wonder for you. How do you feel in this moment if we were to do a time capsule of January 2021? uh, You know, can you how do you feel looking back on all this and also what's still on the to do list? Looking back, I feel surprisingly sanguine about 
what I've done. I, did I waste a lot of opportunities? You bet. But finally, I got my stuff together, and, um, and I'm proud of being in, in certain projects and, that, and grateful to have gotten that opportunity. And, uh, and I've just finished building a barn in Connecticut, and I'm looking forward to spending some time in my barn. With your grand, right? Yes, with my grandson across the road. So I I don't, uh, well, actually, I do have some plans other than that, some work plans. But I I think I'm really looking forward to to reading. I have lots of books I want to read in my barn. That sounds great. And I I just can't thank you enough for a lot of fun uh, entertainment over the years and for doing this and being so uh, open and honest with everything. It's a real treat to get to speak with you. I hope it wasn't too... Much of a grind for you. <laughs> it was lovely. It was lovely. It was a pleasure to spend time with you. And thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.